My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Bradwell charter skipper John Rawl is my guest today. I say Bradwell skipper, but actually that isn't strictly true. As for a good number of years now, you've been handing over the helm to your relief skipper this side of the Atlantic for a few months, while you take guided parties out from Isla Morada in the Florida Keys. A great opportunity then for you to compare and contrast these two very different situations, and perhaps even give us a lowdown on how the Americans could teach us a thing or two over here, in terms of conserving angling fish stocks. To get things going then, what I'd like to do here is have you take us through a typical year in the life of John Rawl, and feel free to throw in any relevant comments or observations along the way. My year, generally chaos. Once we get Christmas out of the way, we normally spend about two weeks at home here in the UK, and then we go out for our winter period in the Keys, which we normally start about the middle of January, and we're there till about the end of Feb, approximately most years. The fishing that time of year out there is varied. You, you haven't got the numbers of big tarpon. You've got lots of tarpon in the sort of the 20 to 50 pound bracket, the smaller fish. Lots of sharks, unless it gets very, very cold, which does once in a blue moon in Florida, but not very often. Um, you've got all the mackerels, Spanish mackerel, Cerro mackerel, king mackerel. You've got cobias, grubas, snappers, jacks, barracudas. The, the list is, is, is literally phenomenal out there. There's so many different species. One of our groups um, last year or the year before caught 44 different species of fish in one week. Then we're there till about the end of Feb. We then come home and I have about two or three weeks in the UK sort of sorting my life out. Make sure that the, the, the charter operation over here is running in full swing. There's a, the lad that works with me, Phil White, looks after my boat and runs my business when I'm in the US. I then go back out to the Keys about the middle of March where we start our main sort of spring tarpon and shark and the, the main part of our season. We're there normally till, normally the first week of June, then when, then I come back to the UK until Christmas, so that we're effectively sort of five months out there and about seven months here. So what exactly is your operation over in the States? You obviously have a boat over there, but what about accommodation? Is what you do aimed solely at visiting UK parties? Just deal purely with English people. Our house is in the southern part of Isla Morada. Carol and I got an, like an, a, a self-contained apartment upstairs. The downstairs of our house has got three ensuite bedrooms, which we let out to our guests. So we deal with parties between anything between sort of two, three, four, five, six. We can we can take a maximum of eight, but most of our parties are consist of other sort of five or six people. They come and stay with us for either a week or ten days. Self-catering accommodation in the house. The boat's tied up out, literally outside the back door. I, I take all the guys fishing, whatever they want to do. We've got our sort of set packages. Some people have the standard package, some people want to order it. We can tailor it to pretty much what you want to do and what you want to fish for. And what range of packages can people go for? During the winter time, or the, we call it the winter fishing, it's sort of January, February. So it's a, it's a real mix of small to medium size different species of fish with a few big fish thrown in you get uh we get plenty of big sharks in the winter providing it stays reasonably mild we, you know with bull sharks lemon sharks black tips spinner sharks you also get massive sawfish especially in february is a good month for sawfish we've had sawfish to nearly 1200 pounds obviously you don't bring those things on board it's just a guesstimate of the weight but 
we've had several 15, 16 footers and one in particular that was about 19 foot that I guesstimated at about 1200 pounds you only just pull these things up alongside the boat and have a look and then let them go because you don't want sort of coming on for half a tonne of pissed off dinosaur thrashing around in a 24 foot boat on top of which in the US these days an increasing variety of fish species now have to be left in the water which when you think about it is no bad thing it's state law over there now that um, a lot of their sport fish are not only you're not allowed to land them you're not allowed to bring them ashore you're not even allowed to remove them from the water like tarp is one of the main species hook him and pluck and fight him and you can bring him alongside the boat but you're not allowed to remove him from the water so you can get a picture in the water and then the fish is released this is to protect the fish a lot of the fish out there because of the warm water got a very high metabolism they also fight very very hard and they can fight themselves to a virtual standstill and if you stop and move them they get a massive lactic acid build up in the body which can cause them to seize up and they will die so if you stop and move in, I wait to drag them out of the water and get a photograph and the chances are you're killing that fish another one of the species that they do in that with is the goliath grouper they've made a pretty good comeback over there the last few years they were they were virtually hunted to extinction by scuba divers and spear gun fishermen back in the 90s but they've, they've been protected since about 95 and they've made a massive comeback now and a you know, very important part of the fishery over there they, these things grow enormous they're sort of regularly caught sort of three four five hundred pound and again you're not allowed to actually lay, you remove those from the water you can bring them alongside the boat get a photograph and um, release them and they're probably going to do it with a, a few more of their speaker species as well just purely to protect them Actually, earlier this week I received an email circular from the RGFA detailing a new record list which you've recently set up, based on measured length only, which I suppose under the circumstances you just described is now the only option left to them for certain sporting species of fish. It's about time we woke up over here to a lot of things like that. Thankfully, most of the, a lot of the old clubs and some of the old organisation that had rules cast in stone that were back, made back in the dark ages have actually lightened up a little bit. Like a lot of the competitions now are run on points, measurements, which, which enables the fish to be released rather than a, a mass slaughter and a weigh-in where half the fish are dumped at the end of it anyway a lot of the time. What about the BP Gulf of Mexico oil spill? Has that had any detrimental effect, or any effect at all even, on Florida's inshore fish population numbers and distribution? The oil problem didn't come anywhere near us at all, Phil. It didn't come within 800 miles of us. It stayed up right up in the Gulf. And it was grossly exaggerated as well. It was the Yanks trying to claim on BP's um, vulnerability or stupidity, if you like, saying that they're, they're responsible and they'll pay compensation. Where there's blame, there's a claim. is um, very prevalent over there. And um, the more fuss they could make, the more money they could claim off of BP. So they did. But it didn't come anywhere near southern florida nowhere near it at all it didn't come anywhere near near florida so when you fly back out for the second guiding stint how will the fishing have changed from that earlier winter visit the, the spring period sort of march april may is predominantly after bigger fish there's sort of less of them but bigger fish are big tarpon you're talking a fish between 80 and 220 pounds probably the average weight of the tarpon that time of year is about 100 125 we get a lot of fish each year, over 150, and most years we catch one or two over 200. The biggest we've had was, a, again, all these weights are guesstimated because you don't bring the fish out and weigh it, but I've seen enough of them and we're probably not far out with our 
with our weights. The biggest one we've actually got alongside the boat was about 225. Guy fought that for an hour and 40 minutes before we actually got it alongside. That's the you know, the big tarp. And the sharps in the spring, are, again, you get a big variety. You get lemons, which grow to well over 400, probably approaching 500, some of the big lemons. We've had bull sharks over 500 pounds. Spinners, black tips. They're slightly smaller sharks, but out of all of them, they fight harder than the rest put together. They're fantastic scrappers, especially, especially black tips. They're enormous, great spinning jumps when you hook them. What are your stats like on tarpon then, particularly in terms of numbers and catch frequency? Numbers-wise, over the last few years, Phil, we've averaged approximately 30 fish a week over a hundred pounds. That's between four, five, six, seven guys. So if you break that down, the average is the last, well, probably the last six or seven years, eight years, is about five fish per person over a hundred pound per week. Some get more, some get less. It, obviously, it varies. If you ask for an average, that's about what it averages out at. And things with tarpon fishing, you know, you've been, you don't just sort of land every one you catch. You get a good tarpon angler will possibly land 50% of the fishy hooks. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just the nature of the animal. It's got a mouth made of fiberglass, and uh, they're very, very acrobatic, and they do throw the hook. So if you catch five or six, you probably hooked a dozen, 15. When we were chatting earlier before I switched the recording gear on, you mentioned how you use the tides to your advantage when fishing for tarpon. So how does that work out? They are nocturnal, and to get the best of them, you do need to fish in the times of the day where it's either in the dark or you've got very low light levels, i.e. dawn and dusk. Now on the big tides, we tend to fish for them in the, in the mornings, early mornings, and on the smaller tides, we tend to fish for them in the evenings, which seems to be the best pattern. So that then takes care of arguably the pleasanter portion of your fishing gear, after which, presumably, it's back to reality with something of a bump. No, I'll be honest with you, Phil, I've sort of, um, a lot of people say that, I said, how do you do it? Well, I've, when I fly out there, when I fly out to the States, I tend to throw a switch on the back of my head in the US mode and switch off the UK mode. They're in the keys, I'm doing the thing out there. Then when we fly back, as soon as I get on that plane from Miami and fly back here, I'll switch UK mode back on again. And I don't know, I don't tend to think about it too much. I just, I still love what I do on on both sides of the Atlantic. Just in time, I suppose, for the peak of the summer, then the autumn and the winter fishing. So how does all that pan out? When we come back in June, it's it's right in the middle of the taupe season. You've got taupes, move-downs, bass, thornbacks. You've got pretty much everything. All of our summer species are about in June. I usually miss a lot of the crappy weather as well, which is a good thing. It's good fun. It's it's just varied. And, you know, people say, oh, I can handle it. Oh, landing all the gun, fishing for all those big things and then coming back here. But everything's got its place. And fishing's fishing's the world over. You've got different challenges it's just different and I'll keep it separate because if you did join the two together it would probably screw up both of them. Yeah I can appreciate that. So concentrating solely on Bradwell for now how does the fishing today compare to what you had when you first started? What changes have you seen over the past 40 years or more? Let's take as an example the Thornback Ray. Up in Lancashire where I fish we used to have them in big numbers then we lost them and now they're back reinforcing the fact that fish populations never remain constant for a whole variety of reasons. So what have been your observations? Thornbacks now, Phil, I've never seen numbers like it, mainly because of the commercial fleet. There's a fishing port just across the river from us at West Mersey. At one time there used to be eight or ten gillnetters. 
seven or eight trawlers. Now there's probably two gill netters and two trawlers now operating out of that port. And because of the greatly reduced commercial fishing, a lot of the numbers of a lot of the fish have come back dramatically. 20 years ago, a good day on Thornbacks was 15, 20 fish on the boat for the day. Now you can go and do that in 45 minutes. A good day now is, well, you don't spend the day on them because you haven't got to. But now Thornback numbers have increased tremendously in the last few years. It's not uncommon to go and get 20 or 30 in half a day and then go and do something else, either fish for bass, smooth hounds, tope, dog, whatever you want to fish for. Now there's a lot more about of those. And what's the bass, tope and smooth hound situation like these days? The tope come and go here. We do get some very, very big tope. I've still got the official current British record on my boat, 82A. But I think there has been probably one or two bigger ones caught other places that haven't been weighed, haven't been brought ashore and weighed and claimed. Some of the ones that have been claimed in the papers and the magazines, I must admit, they, they aren't any of the new set of scales. On my boats over the years, we've had um, 16 tope over 70 pound and one over 80. Now I've got measurements of most of those fish. Now those are actually weighed ones. Now some of these other ones that I've seen claimed aren't anywhere near the size of those fish and they're claiming sort of 80, 90 pound. But there you go, that's another story. Bass-wise... It depends on conditions. If I'm honest, I don't think we get quite so many bass here as what we used to because they're definitely going further north now. We used to be on about the northern extremity here. The Essex-Suffolk border used to be about as far north as they used to go. And whether it is global warming or warming sea temperatures, I don't know. But now we get some really good bassing in the spring and we get some really good bassing in the autumn. But during the middle of the summer, which used to be a lot of the peak of our fishing, it's not so good here now because I think they're going further north. We get them as they're coming through, and we get them as they're coming back. But they're definitely going further north now. And I think quite a few of the other fish are doing a similar sort of thing. Tote-wise, is dependent on the numbers of mackerel we get. If we get a lot of mackerel, we get a lot of tope. If we don't get many mackerel, we don't get many tope. And you never know what you're going to get until you get it, if you know what I mean. We've had, I've had some years where you're not expecting much, and it's fantastic. 15, 20, 25 fish a day and then next year you're expecting it to be fantastic and it's bloody rubbish you know, it's dependent on mackerel and they are unpredictable but they always have been So the current British tort record is still held by your boat a fish which under current claims rules can never now be replaced regardless of what else bigger might come along as it's illegal for tort and some other species to be weighed on land as the British Record Fish Committee rules stipulate do you have any opinions on, say, a points-based system calculated by multiplying girth by length, or weight estimation even as opposed to the actual weighing of fish in the boat? Something right. needs to be done like that. There's equations that you can use, Phil, to calculate a weight. You probably know them yourself. I think it's the length times the girth squared divided by 800. That works, I, and I've actually checked that on fish that I've weighed, and it's fairly good. Providing it's a fish-shaped fish, not some of these prehistoric things, and I think the British Record Fish Committee ought to sort of jump forward into modern times and, and do something like that. Now that, to clarify one thing, that fish was returned, they accepted that. We didn't bring that in. It was weighed on a flat calm deck, witnessed by X amount of people, scales were checked, certified, measurements were certified and checked. And they accepted that fish weighed on board. I don't know what the situation is now, but as you said, probably no one would ever bring a fish ashore to claim a record. It's illegal.
It's, 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 it's illegal, but I personally held the Stingray record for about three or four years with a fish that was weighed on board and released, and I accepted that. That's been superseded three or four times since uh, I, I held it. My fish was 65.8. I think now it's 74 something or other, again, from this area. You surprised me when you say they accepted it, knowing it was weighed in the boat, when their own rules categorically say this cannot be the case. I personally have no problem with that, but they need to be open and honest with people, because bigger fish may have been returned by anglers elsewhere interpreting the rules at face value, on top of which, who decides where to draw the line in terms of what are acceptable sea conditions for onboard weighing? For me, there urgently needs to be a good workable alternative to what is currently in place. Sticking with weight as a means of describing the size of a fish is living in the dark ages. The fish recorders desperately need to move with the times. I don't know why they won't do it. I think we sort of set a bit of a precedent. When I claimed that Stingray record, I sort of embarrassed them into changing the rules. I sort of unofficially held the top record myself for a little while. When the old Welsh record, I think it was 72.11 by Ack Harris years ago, I caught one sixty. Uh, sorry, I caught one seventy six eight. Now I never actually got to claim that because about six days later, one of the other boats down here, the chap called Phil Richards on board, caught one seventy nine something or other. He actually claimed the record with that. I did, because because mine was superseded, I didn't bother. Both those fish were returned, and then again the current one we've got, Bob Chatfield eighty two eight. That was wide released. Is that era we sort of embarrassed them into? accepting fish weighed on board but since then they've had a lot of flack from other parts of the country saying that it's not right it's not fair people can cheat they can do this they can do that you're going to get commercial fishermen claiming records and they've thrown it all out why i don't know they do need to do something a, a measurement calculation which is probably the fairest way obviously coupled with photographs witness statements and a weight do the whole lot and then release the fish They've got, they've got to do something. All the same safeguards and rules could remain in place regardless of whether you weigh or measure. So in that case, one is no more legitimate than the other. And most important of all, it's the same for everyone. That's right. I personally would go for a points-based system multiplying length by girth, and I've suggested this to the British Record Fish Committee, but without any success. That way, if you have a fatter fish, the points tally goes up in exactly the same way as the weight would. Anyway, enough of that. What's the next step on your seasonal calendar? Uh, we hold most of the summer species right away through sort of um, June, July, August, September. Things start to switch a little bit. The bass tends to get a bit better in September, possibly with the fish that have gone north starting to move back past our patch. We got thornbacks all summer, but we tend to get a second run again in the autumn as the water starts to cool a little bit. As you go through September, that carries on, but then the first of the cotton whiting start to arrive. Normally by the end of the September, you start to lose some of the bass. They start to thin out a little bit. Thornbacks are still there, but you've got a few more white in the bat, and the first of the sort of the better cod start to move in on the offshore areas. And that carries on right through October, November, December. Peak of our codding for the bigger fish is usually at November, December. The fish that are sexually mature a lot are normally about six or seven pounds. January, February, they tend to move offshore a little bit to spawn. They don't go far. They just go out some areas in the middle of the North Sea, about 50, 60 mile off. 
So in January and February, you've often still got plenty of cod, but they're generally the smaller ones, sort of pound and a half to four pound, five pound size fish. Fish that aren't sexually mature, they will stay inshore. The bigger ones move off to spawn. And then you get what you call the spring run, which usually starts about the end of February, where you get the fish that are moved off the spawn. So they, they tend to start moving back inshore to feed up. And also, you definitely get another flush of fish moving usually around about end of February, early March, which is a traditional East Coast spring run. Again, they're usually smaller fish, two, three, four, five pound. Those will hang around all through March, early April, normally by about the middle, third week of April, most of them have cleared off, they've moved off because the water gets too warm, and they then get replaced by sort of skate, as you get into May, bass, smooth hounds, dogs, and towards the end of May, all of the main summer species, the tope, the mackerel, everything comes piling back in again, and that's pretty much full circle. Yeah, but you won't know the last bit because you're away sunning yourself in Florida. I'm thinking about it though, Phil. I'll bet you are. Moving on, one of the big plus points you have here at Bradwell, which must give you an edge over many other UK charter fishing venues, is that you have one hell of a degree of good, sheltered, fishable water on many different directions of wind. We don't lose many trips. I mean, in saying that, I probably had our worst autumn ever this year with the bloody snow and freezing cold temperatures. But then, I, I, actually, I think it was on telly a couple of days ago, officially it's the coldest December since records began. Our marina was frozen for nearly three weeks. And that was that's bloody cold. You know, it was... I've, I've got thermometers on both more echo sounders on the boat, and there's, there's for quite a few days there, that was 32.6 degrees in the marina. That's 0.6 of a degree above freezing. There was ice all over the place, and it, it, it did push the fish a long way offshore. Normally, we don't lose many days um, because we're sheltered from three directions. It's only either an east or a southeast wind that can screw us up. All the other directions, we've got a fair degree of shelter. Anything from the west we're sheltered from, anything from the north we're sheltered from. And on, on the lower half of the tide, because we've got sandbanks going 15, 20, 25 miles off, Quite often on the lower half of the tide, we're protected from pretty much everything from the south as well because you can just get behind one of the drying banks. So we are very, very sheltered here. We don't lose many days. And what's the quality of your fallback fishing here like compared to, say, what you would be doing if only the weather would let you get further off? It's not as good, Phil, obviously, I'll be being honest. Spring and autumn, it's OK. It's not, it doesn't make much difference, spring and autumn. I'm talking April, May, October, November doesn't make much difference because you'd probably be fishing the inshores areas then anyway. The other months of the year, it is obviously affected because you can't get where you want to get, but we can usually catch a few fish. You wouldn't lose your day and it wouldn't be a total disaster. You know, like if you was penned inshore cod-wise, if those were arguments case we was getting 50 a day on the offshore marks, you're probably looking at 15, 20 a day on the inshore marks if you're held in by weather. So you can still get a decent bit of fishing, but you're obviously not as good as what it would be if you can get further out. What about other species such as stingrays, for example? The Thames estuary has, or had, quite a healthy population of these fish at one stage. How often do these feature in today's catches compared to what was gone in the past? I don't know what's happened to the stingrays, to be honest with you. The last few years I've hardly seen any. In, in all fairness, we hardly ever fish for them now. The stingrays have always been inshore. They've either been in the rivers, the estuaries, or around the, the mud flats, around on the Dingy Peninsula, or on the Maplin Sands, and places like that. We hardly ever fish 
those areas now because everyone's got more modern, faster, bigger boats. We're going further off. We don't get held pinned in shore anywhere near so much as what we used to because basically the, the industry's evolved. You know, like my boat now, cruise at 17, 18 knots. Whereas before, we, we was all using slower boats. Punching a big spring tide either way wasn't an option, so you stayed in shore. Now, it doesn't make any difference to me. So we're not fishing the areas where they are very much at all now. But in saying that, there definitely doesn't seem to be so many about. I think it's the same down the Solent as well, where they get them down there. Something's happened. Um, there's not so many about as what there used to be. So what other species might you expect to see? Uh, we've seen a few oddities here. One or two turbot occasionally. I caught a couple of black bream last year, which I've never seen before around this part of the world. We don't see too many oddities. The definite change is, is that we get a lot more mackerel than what we used to, which is good, because it brings a lot of the predators in with it. You know, More tope, thornbacks, more sort of bigger bass full of the mackerel in. Whiting have taken a massive dip. There's nowhere near so many whiting as what there used to be. Why, I don't know, because they're not being caught commercially now. Cod-wise, it's improved. Skate-wise, it's improved. Bass-wise, it's probably not quite as good as it used to be. There's a lot more smaller ones, but there's probably not so many medium-sized We get more smaller ones and more bigger ones now, but we don't get so many of the in-between-sized ones, and I think a lot of those go further north. Um, Smooth-down-wise... It's never really changed much because they've got no commercial value. They're not fished for commercially. It's probably improved a fair bit on that front because we've learned we've learned a lot more about them. They're all returned now. No one keeps them. And with also modern navigation equipment, we've pinpointed a lot of the big the, 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 the hermit crab beds and the areas where they feed. So that we, we probably catch more smoothhounds than what we ever used to. Speaking of smoothhounds, what do you make of the recent PhD thesis by Irish researcher Ed Farrell, who provided DNA evidence that what anglers call common and starry smoothhounds are in actual fact one and the same fish? I've not seen any of the, any of the, the technical write-ups or the, the work that this guy has done, Phil, but um, it doesn't surprise me that it is only one species because you, do, you get some of the ones that they call the common ones, you, you, they have got sort of spots in the same places that the starry smooth, what they call the starry smooth hounds have got spots so there's no difference in the coloration of them there's no differences in the, in the actual fish itself I don't know enough to actually sort of comment with any great authority but it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that there is only one species Do you get a mix of the two variations here or are they predominantly one or the other and if so, which way around? We get both sorts probably early season may stroke june if they are a separate species we get more of the starry smooth hounds earlier in the year uh, later in the year we tend to get more of the what they call the common smooth hounds it's always, always the mustellus astarius and the mustellus mustellus which is the common one but you, we get an even mix probably slightly weighed in favor of the starry around here what kind of numbers and sizes are we talking about here majority of the, the, the fish we catch early season are two to eight pound that's up till about the middle of june once you get past the middle of june then it then it swings the other way you, they tend to get bigger most of our fish from mid-june till september are six to eighteen i suppose the average fish is eight nine ten pound i suppose is the average sort of size of the fish that time of year 
someone told me, again, I stand to be corrected on this, but I think they drop their pups biannually, so it's every two years. It seems to be that we get a run of big fish, 16 to 25 pound, every other year, which seems to tie in with the biannual dropping of their pups. So how do you see the future for Bradwell, both in the short and the longer term? I can't see it changing much, Phil, to be honest with you. With the big reduction in commercial fishing, there's always going to be plenty of fish there to catch, providing we get the conditions. We haven't had a particularly great cod season this year, and that's purely because of the weather. You don't normally expect your massive freeze-up through November and December. It has buggered the fishing, not only here, it ran a lot of the country. You can't factor in elements like that, but overall, given decent conditions and a fair shot to get where you need to get, I don't think we can have a problem fish-wise. Based on this privileged double life you lead split between the UK and the US, what would you like to bring to the UK fishery from your Florida experience that could benefit the situation over here? The so-called angling authorities and anglers themselves could learn an awful lot from the way they operate in the States very strict bag limits i think the charter boats over here i don't i think it would make it sometimes perhaps a bit easier for the skipper if there were bag limits it stops some days sort of slaughters going on where people take far too many fish for what they really need now over in america they've got we've got they've got bag limits on every species that are very very strictly enforced and their fishing is probably some of the best in the world because of that they look after the natural resource that they've got now, it needn't be too stringent. It could be realistic, you know, but I don't see anything wrong in a size limit, personally. Not a size limit, a bag limit. Providing it's not too stringent, providing it's realistic, just to stop some people being greedy. You know, if you're honest with yourself nowadays, you're already starving, are you? And a lot of the fish that end up getting chucked in the freezer three or four months later end up getting thrown away because they're past their sell-by date. You know, do you need to take so many fish home some of the time? You know, certainly a lot of my anglers now are quite happy to come and catch a few fish, take two or three for the pot, two or three for the table, and put the rest back. And I think we can see, I see a lot of see more of that going on. But they also go for size limits, though not perhaps as we would recognise them here. For example, the compulsory turning of not only small immature fish which have yet to breed, but also the larger mature brood fish too. That... It's what they call a slot size limit. That works incredibly well in America. Now, for argument's sake, with cod or bass, say, you, you wouldn't be allowed to take a fish, say, under 16 inches or 18 inches. So that would be the minimum size limit you're allowed to take. But then also, you wouldn't be allowed to take a fish over 30 inches or 28 inches. And it's those big fish, it's returning those big fish, it's, it's, it's probably more important than putting the smaller ones back because it's the, the big fish are your breeding stock. And one of the first states to bring that slot size limit in was Texas. Now, I think nearly most of the states of America now that have got a, some, some sort of seaboard have brought these in on certain species. But Texas was the first state to bring in a slot size limit on redfish, trout and snook. And after five years, their stocks have gone up about approximately 1,500%. So, you know, I think it's just against a lot of people's culture to put big fish back, but it's the big fish that is the spawning stock, which is the key to having much, much greater numbers of meat, small to medium fish. But with the chances of bringing that in over here, I honestly think are pretty slim. But um, that's what needs to be done. Where I think that might fall down over here is that if we were to have bag limits or slot limits, or better still, even both, to work properly, they have to be rigidly enforced, 
which undoubtedly would mean funding by way of a sea angling licence, which would be no bad idea if we could be sure that all the monies raised went back into implementation. If the money went to where it was supposed to go, Phil, I'd be fully in favour of it. The bottom line is it would probably go in sort of, sort of some government fund and get lost, and it would just be like another tax. But if it was directed to where it should go, then I think it would be a good thing, because it does need strictly enforced. And over there, you've got four separate authorities that look after the fishing. You've got the US Coast Guard, you've got the Everglades National Park Rangers, you've got the Florida Marine Sanctuary. They've all got the same powers. They can all stop you, all, all search your boat, all check your limits and your safety gear. But it costs. And the, the licensing in, the, in America is hardly expensive. It's about 20 quid for the year. But all of that money goes to preserving and looking after the fisheries. I know it's a very controversial subject over here. I think that if people knew that the money was being directed back to where it should be, for what you're paying for it, then they wouldn't mind paying it. The Irish government have introduced catch restrictions for bass without too much controversy, and from what I hear, it's already producing positive results. In addition to which, UK anglers are still going over there in good numbers, which means they must also be seeing the benefits. So why not this side of the Irish Sea too? All, all of my customers that come to America are quite to comply with it out there. You go somewhere else that's got it, you accept it. If it was here, people would have to accept it. I think in this day and age, the opposition would be minimal, providing it was re reasonable and realistic. And in my opinion, the way to make that happen is to sort of bring it in voluntarily before you get some scientist tell you what you can and can't do. If you brought something in voluntarily that's realistic, then you are being seen to be responsible and maybe you'd be left alone, whereas if you just leave it alone and you may get someone else come steaming in, some bureaucrat or a politician come and tell you, right, we've got to save the numbers of this particular fish or that particular fish, and then bring in sort of something like a total ban or a one fish bag limit, then that's going to make everyone fairly unhappy. But something in, in the long term needs to be done that is mutually agreeable by all parties. And I think a bag limit with either a slot size limit, you know, on all species, on some of the rarer species, perhaps a one or two fish bag limit. On the more common species, four, five, six fish per person. Something realistic is the way to go. Are we not already going down that path to some extent, with anglers and angling bodies being asked to submit information to facilitate the implementation of exclusion zones? It's heading in that direction, Phil. I think that's the way it needs to go. You get a minority now. It doesn't happen very often. The last couple of summers, we've had a lot of skate at times. Too many. It seems a strange thing to say, but we have had, you know, there's too many. And we go to an area and we catch 15, 20, 25, 30 skate in a couple of hours. And everyone's got two, three, four each. Now, that, in my opinion, is plenty. Some parties want to stay there all day and just slaughter them. And that's, I tend to sort of try and encourage them not to sometimes. But you can't, because there's nothing, there's no legislation in place, you can't really stop it. It doesn't happen very often because myself and a lot of other responsible skippers do in that situation is you just wait for a slight lull in the fishing and then move. You do it diplomatically. But something needs to be put in place. I think it, I think it is heading in that direction. To some extent, that takes the pressure off you then. It does take the pressure off the skipper because if, if it's in black and white and set, you know, cast in stone, that is the limit for this fish, that's the limit for that fish, it solves the problem. Whether we can make a slot size limit work over here, I don't know. 
the fish in the other side of the Atlantic is heavily regulated, more heavily regulated than what it is here. You certainly wouldn't get the commercial element agree to it over here, but there's a lot less of them now than what there used to be anyway, so maybe it might not be quite an issue. Why is it that the commercials need to be asked, whereas anglers are always being told? Because they've got a much stronger representation than what we have. We're not taken seriously. Uh, it's getting that way. Recreational angling is now recognised as a very valuable resource. Um, it's, it's also the amount of revenue it generates. But the commercial fishermen's lobby and the commercial fishermen organisations are still way ahead of us as a, as a group in regards to being organised with top-level representation. Well, you've certainly given us plenty to think about there, with one subject that is most definitely in some form or other unlikely to go away, whether we like it or not. And why shouldn't we like it, with the American example already producing huge dividends? So a big thank you then to John Rawl for sharing his double life with us here, and hopefully sowing a few seeds that will go towards providing a better crop of fish for us all in the future. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs>